Well, please open your Bibles to John 19. Again, that's John chapter 19. Over the past several weeks, we've been moving through Matthew's account of the suffering and crucifixion of Christ. And if you've been with us, then you know that I've made a pretty big deal as we've gone about drawing out how Matthew tailors his account of Jesus' crucifixion to his readers. I've pointed out that the Gospels are are not mere history textbooks about the life of Jesus, meaning that they're not simply recording cold facts. Instead, they intend to interpret and and apply the life of Jesus for their readers. And so they will, at times, intentionally include or exclude, sometimes even rearrange events in the life of Jesus in order to communicate the point they're trying to get across. Well, last week we took a look at Matthew's account of the trial before Pilate. And I explained that Matthew uses that stage of the trial to demonstrate the effects of unbelief. And and he does that particularly on Israel. Again, Matthew's writing to to Jewish Christians uh, who are apparently perplexed by the unbelief and even the hostility of their Jewish brethren towards the Messiah. Matthew has been developing both the root and the effect of that unbelief throughout his gospel. But as we get to the sentencing stage of Jesus' trial, we hit a climax. Right there, right at the point where Pilate is about to deliver his verdict against Jesus. As Pilate tries to declare Jesus innocent and absolve himself of any responsibility for his execution, the people cry out, His blood be on us and on our children. Only Matthew includes that statement in his gospel. And it's a statement that is really meant to reverberate in the minds of his readers. If they want to know why things are the way they are in Israel today, there's their answer. When the Messiah came, offering Himself to His people, not only did they reject the clear testimony pointing to His Messianic identity, but they even ignored the testimony of men like Judas, who declared Him to be an innocent man. And Pilate, who again declared Him to be an innocent man. And they willingly and knowingly took responsibility for His death. Thus, there's a twist of irony in the verdict against Jesus. It really becomes an indictment against Israel. And all the suffering that has followed for that nation since then, it goes back to that moment when they rejected their protector and king. God is disciplining His people, and according to Jesus, the discipline will continue until the day of their repentance. This is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem when He entered the city at the beginning of the week. He said it was because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. It's why he cried out after the final confrontation with the religious leaders on Tuesday, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a time of restoration coming for Israel. There will be a day when, in repentance, the people cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel will believe. They will accept their Messiah, and he will deliver them. But until that day comes, this statement before Pilate says it all. His blood be on us and on our children. These are all points that Matthew is trying to make in his account of Jesus' death, and they teach us about the consequences of unbelief. Well, this morning I want to take a quick break from Matthew. And I want to jump over instead to the Gospel of John. If you recall, I've said that Peter and John would appear to be the only two disciples that witnessed any of the stages of Jesus' trial. At least those are the only two disciples who are ever mentioned in any proximity to Jesus during the trial in any of the Gospels. Well, Matthew has focused in more on Peter's account of the trial. Today we're going to hear more of John's side of the story. And we're going to see what John has to say about this stage before Pilate in particular. Of course, Matthew doesn't give us a lot of details about Pilate's part in the trial. He doesn't tell us much about what Pilate said or thought as he examined Jesus because he's focusing mostly on the role his fellow Jews played in the death of Jesus. John is also interested in Israel's rejection of the Christ, but what's different in his account of Jesus' death is that he does tell us about the things that Pilate said and did during the trial. So the tables turn a little bit here. In Matthew, Pilate is almost preached as an innocent bystander caught in the crossfire of an internal religious dispute. John, though, is not so gracious. 
He still presents Pilate as a man who's sort of unintentionally roped into a religious argument he doesn't want any part of. But the difference is that John brings out to a much greater degree the guilt that Pilate shares in the death of Christ. So even though he's a reluctant participant in these affairs, that doesn't change the fact that he's still a participant. And because he's a participant, he's just as guilty as everyone else. It doesn't matter what he says about washing his hands of innocent blood. Pilate knew what he did. And because he knew, he's culpable. He's guilty. And this is what John is going to draw out for us. And as he draws this out for us, he's going to show us the irrationality of unbelief. So there's a bit of a flow here. Last week we got to explore the consequences of unbelief. We saw what happens when a person chooses to ignore the truth repeatedly over time. Now today we're going to see how that decision is completely and entirely irrational. In other words, it doesn't make sense. Just like Israel rejected Jesus in spite of all the evidence, not only of his Messiahship, but even of his innocence, so also Pilate is going to sentence Jesus to death in spite of evidence to the contrary. So if it isn't evidence that drives a person away from Jesus, what does? We're going to take a look at that this week. And then actually next week, I want us to consider how this affects the way we evangelize. Of course, this has been a major theme of ours over the past year. We've been talking a lot about evangelism. Well, how does the irrationality of unbelief affect the way you go about evangelism? If people don't respond to evidence, if it's not dependent on presenting the right data. Now, what do you need to do as you share your faith? We'll take a look at that next week as we continue to build on the irrationality of unbelief. Let's go ahead and start by reading today's passage together. It's John 19, 1-16. And recounting Jesus' examination before Pilate, John says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said, to, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Well, more often than not, it's bound to happen. You're explaining the gospel to someone or you're talking to someone about your faith. And before you know it, the person replies with something like, you know, I'm I'm glad that works for you. I know that, that you believe that and I'm glad that works for you, but that's just not for me. And you ask, why not? And they explain, well, I just don't think any of it's true. I mean, the earth made in six days, Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, Jonah living in the belly of a fish for three days, Jesus walking on water, Jesus raising the dead, the apostles performing all these miracles. It all just seems a bit far-fetched, don't you think? I mean, do you really expect me to to believe all of that? It just seems like a big made-up story. I can't see any difference between Jesus and Zeus. It's all a pretty amazing fiction, don't you think? So you start up a conversation on these issues and you begin to present logical proof after logical proof for 
whatever objection they might have, but in the end they still refuse to believe. You ever wonder why that happens? Sometimes it, it can be incredibly frustrating to see a person reject the truth in the face of overwhelming evidence. And you begin to wonder, why don't they just believe? Why do people reject the gospel in the face of such overwhelming evidence? It's a question that can easily perplex us as Christians. But if we understand the answer to it, we can better know how to address the problem with those that we're sharing Christ with. So why do people reject the gospel in the face of overwhelming evidence? Well, while there are a number of different answers, we can give this, uh, this to, to this question from a variety of different approaches. In the passage before us this morning, John explains at least two reasons why people do this. You see, the problem of rejection in the face of overwhelming evidence was not an unfamiliar issue for John. Throughout this gospel, John has been trying to achieve one overall purpose for his readers. John 20, 30-31 tells us that he wrote this gospel so that his readers, quote, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Throughout this gospel, he has provided eyewitness testimony of miracles and statements that are meant to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the whole purpose of this book, to help readers believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In this sense, John's gospel is, is more evangelistic than Matthew's gospel. Whereas Matthew is writing to believers in order to strengthen and encourage them in their relationship with Christ, John is actually intending to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. This means that whereas Matthew takes Jesus' messianic status for granted, choosing to focus more on what Jesus taught about the kind of life that a church is supposed to lead in the current age, John is actually trying to build a case for Jesus as the Messiah. He's trying to demonstrate, and again, it would seem that Jews are perhaps the focus. They're his intended audience. But he's trying to simply prove that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Well, as John comes to the end of his gospel, it would appear he anticipates a rather unique set of objections as he recounts the manner of Jesus' death. And those questions revolve around the fact that Jesus didn't just die any death. He was crucified. Crucifixion is among the worst types of death imaginable. It was a death so bad that in Jewish thought it was believed that the one who was crucified was uniquely cursed by God. That crucifixion was actually a punishment for their great sin. So it would have been hard for John's readers to imagine how the Messiah, literally the Anointed One, a man who was supposedly peculiarly blessed by God, how that man could be crucified. And it would have been perhaps even more problematic for them to reconcile how men took Jesus. Again, the man who's supposed to be the Christ, the Son of God, it would have been hard for them to understand how mere men, mere mortals, could seize Him by force and execute Him. In light of these facts, it would appear John anticipates two questions from his readers. First and foremost, they would have wanted to know, why would the people who witnessed these miracles reject Jesus' claims to Messiahship? Why would they reject His claims to Messiahship? According to John, He had done no evil. He was completely innocent, unlike any man who ever lived before. Beyond this, He even performed fantastic miracles, which would have supposedly proved the statements He made about His deity. So he's obviously a good man, and even more than that, he's clearly God himself, if all that what John says about him is true. So why would anyone want this man dead? That's the first question John anticipates. And then second, his readers would also naturally wonder, why would Jesus let this happen? Couldn't he he stop it? Obviously, Jesus did all these other miracles. He claimed to be God. Well, if that's true, then why didn't he stop his own execution? In today's passage, John answers the first question. Why would people who witness these miracles reject Jesus? He answers this question by demonstrating to his audience that the reasons people had for wanting Christ dead were not, in their plainest sense, logical or sensible. It wasn't as if the people responsible actually found fault in him, especially not any fault worthy of death. And it wasn't as if they even misunderstood Jesus or his message. They clearly perceived the fact that the miracles he performed were indeed miracles, and they knew quite clearly that Jesus said these miracles verified the message he preached, which was that he was God and worthy to receive worship. So their rejection wasn't logical at all. No, men executed Jesus for wicked purposes. And in order to achieve these wicked purposes, these men had to purposefully harden their hearts to the overwhelming amount of truth that had been placed in front of them. In this text, John provides two examples 
for us that answer the question, why do unbelievers harden their hearts to the overwhelming truth of the gospel? The first example is the chief priests. They demonstrate that unbelievers will harden their hearts because of pride. Because of pride. And then the second example is Pontius Pilate. And he's going to show us that unbelievers will harden their hearts because of an overpowering love for this world. Let's look at these examples together. The first example is that of the chief priests. And once again, they demonstrate that unbelievers will harden their hearts to the truth out of pride. John 19, 1-7 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. In this passage, we see the chief priests rejected Jesus, not because they didn't believe who he claimed to be, but because their pride made them insanely jealous of him. In order to catch how John is demonstrating this point for his readers, one has to step back and understand this verse in light of all that John has been explaining throughout the Gospel of John particularly starting in John 11 and John 12. Throughout the Gospel of John, John has been providing a series of miracles that Jesus has performed to give proof to the claims that He makes regarding His deity. However, in John 11, Jesus performs one particularly powerful sign, and that is a resurrection. And not just a resurrection, but a resurrection within the vicinity of Jerusalem. One of Jesus' friends, a man by the name of Lazarus, has died. And, John, and, and Jesus raised him from the dead. And Jesus raised him from the dead in order to demonstrate his ability to raise others from the dead. In fact, if you read John 11 closely, you'll discover that Jesus was even intentional about letting Lazarus die before he went to help him. He found out Lazarus was sick and he waited several days to let Lazarus die so he could specifically perform this sign. This miracle is an especially powerful and public demonstration of Jesus' abilities. It's an especially powerful demonstration of His abilities because by the time Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, He had already been in the tomb for four days. So there was no question that the man was dead. He hadn't merely fainted or something like that. He was stone cold dead. He was, in fact, so dead that as Jesus tells those around Him to open the tomb, they warn Him about the stench He's that dead. There's no arguing that Jesus performs the seemingly impossible here. He raises the dead to life. However, this is not only a powerful demonstration of Jesus' abilities, but it's also a very public display of His power. Jesus delays His coming to Lazarus until everyone that is going to mourn His death with His family has arrived. Word is spread. Lazarus is dead. Friends and family have come from surrounding regions to mourn the death of this man. In short, a crowd has gathered and they're all mourning the loss of Lazarus. They all all recognize that he's gone. Incidentally, Lazarus was from Bethany, which was only about two and a half miles from Jerusalem, which is, for some perspective, that's about a a third of the distance from here to Joplin. That's how close Bethany was to Jerusalem. Presumably, Lazarus had made some acquaintances or perhaps there was even family there in Jerusalem that would have come out to witness this miracle. So word of what happened here would have spread quickly beyond Bethany to other places like Jerusalem. When Jesus raises Lazarus, there is a plethora of eyewitnesses on hand to witness what happened there. In fact, one of the eyewitnesses is Lazarus himself. John 12 tells us that Jesus was dining with Lazarus leading up to the Passover. And that people were coming out to see Lazarus. I mean, it's one thing to hear about how a man was raised from the dead. It's quite another to be able to go up and touch him and ask him questions about it, right? That's what was going on in Bethany leading up to the Passover. Well, when this miracle occurs, the the public perception of Jesus in the Gospel of John changes dramatically. While Jesus had, had experienced moments of popularity throughout his previous ministry, and this one in particular 
In this gospel, that appears to push belief in Jesus over the proverbial edge within the vicinity of Jerusalem. John 11.45 says that as a result of this miracle, quote, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Word spreads around the countryside what Jesus had done, and by John 12, when he enters Jerusalem, he is greeted with large crowds celebrating him as the long-promised Messiah on account of this miracle. In John's Gospel, it's at this point when belief in Jesus starts exploding at an incredible rate because of this particular miracle. It's at this point that the chief priests begin conspiring to actually kill Jesus. And when they seek to put him to death, they do so under one pretense, and that's the preservation of the nation. Flip over to John eleven forty-five. Look at this. John eleven forty-five. John says, uh, this is verses 45 through 53. says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So when the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So the chief priest's reason that Jesus' popularity is a threat to Rome. It's going to be a threat to Rome, and it will cause the Romans to come in and take away both their place and their nation. This is why in John 18, after they've captured Jesus, the chief priests come to Pilate with the accusation that Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. Pilate was a representative of Rome. His job as governor was to maintain Roman power and authority in the region. Israel, in particular was an especially stubborn province in the empire. They refused to accept Gentile dominion, and as a result, they produced a number of Messianic pretenders who would lead rebellions against the empire, all of which ultimately failed. The religious leaders think that if they can convince Pilate that Jesus is one of these rebel leaders, then Pilate will perceive Jesus as a threat to Rome, and perceiving him to be a threat, he'll have him killed. The problem, though, is that Pilate doesn't perceive Jesus to be a threat. In John 18, he tells the chief priest that he doesn't find any guilt in Jesus. He doesn't think that Jesus is trying to lead a rebellion, and he tries to find every legal means possible to release him. In fact, as we saw last week, Pilate even goes out of his way to invoke a local custom that allowed the release of one criminal during Passover, suggesting that they release Jesus, essentially. Instead, the Jewish people choose Barabbas, a man who, ironically, is truly guilty of helping leading a rebellion. As a matter of fact, Pilate is so committed to releasing Jesus that when he brings him out in today's passage, he actually is doing it in order to demonstrate his innocence. Turning back to John 19, look at verse 4. He brings Christ out so that the chief priest will know that he finds no guilt in Jesus. Now, if you look there, in verses 1 to 3, Pilate orders Jesus to be beaten. The soldiers even take it a step further in their cruelty by mocking the preposterous notion that Jesus is a king. Jesus is brought out as a bloodied, disfigured mess from the severe beating that he's undergone. And he's dressed mockingly as a king. And it's then that Pilate kind of points to Jesus and cries out, Behold the man. Behold the man. In other words, look at the man you say would be king. Pilate is attempting to demonstrate that Jesus is not in any way a threat to Caesar, right? Just look at him. Is is this guy, this bloody... Look what we did to him. You think he's going to lead a rebellion against us? And the chief priests still cry out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Finally, Pilate responds in kind by refusing to execute Jesus. Second half of verse 6, he says, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
And then John drops a bomb on his readers. The chief priests, now at this point in the trial, they changed their accusation to blasphemy. They came to Pilate saying he needs to die because he's trying to lead a rebellion. We know this because when Pilate begins to question Jesus in John 18.33, he begins with the question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus even replies by asking, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Your own nation uh, have delivered you over to me. The implication is that this is an accusation made by the religious leaders. But Pilate isn't having it. He thinks Jesus is innocent, so he refuses to crucify him for treason. The religious leaders then realize that they have to tell Pilate a different story to get him to comply. So they come up with another one, and it's blasphemy. Under Jewish law, Leviticus 24.16 says, anyone who blasphemes should be put to death. And the strategy here is pretty smart. Pilate won't execute Jesus for committing a capital crime under Roman law, so they say, let's come up with a capital crime that he's committed under Jewish law. Rome often would allow conquered nations to keep many of their own laws. Uh, Roman law was simply added on top of, of the, the laws of the region. However, when local laws and Roman law don't, didn't contradict, the people were allowed to keep the local laws. Here the religious leaders bring a crime that is a death penalty, a, a capital offense according to Jewish law. Now, why don't the Jews simply execute Jesus themselves? They explain in verse 7, when they say that Jesus must die. Under Roman law, only Roman officials could legally pass the death penalty over the accused, meaning they can't crucify Jesus without Pilate's consent. Again, this is a smart strategy. The goal is to really absolve Pilate of any need to be involved in the decision-making process. They want Jesus dead. Pilate refuses to kill Jesus according to Roman law, so the plan is to absolve Pilate from any part in the decision-making process by judging Jesus according to Jewish law. Now, it's not really up to Pilate to determine whether or not Jesus has broken any law or not. He simply needs to pass judgment on behalf of the leaders of Israel so they can execute Jesus. Now, this switch in charge is significant because every other gospel, except for John, gives the accusation of blasphemy for the first time when Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, before the chief priests take Jesus to Pilate. John waits until after Pilate has declared Jesus not guilty of treason to reveal that accusation. Why would that be? Why would John wait to let the reader hear this accusation? I I think it's because John wants to expose their motivation. He wants to make it clear that the chief priests are acting for no other purpose but to serve themselves. All the way up until this point, the chief priests have been saying that their reason for bringing Jesus to Pilate was for the sake of the nation. They claimed it was a noble reason. They claimed they wanted to save Israel from all the trouble that would come from another messianic pretender. But when Pilate says that Jesus is not guilty of treason, they still want him dead. In other words, there is still a reason, still a motive to want him dead, even apart from the national good, and that reason is his popularity. Lazarus still lives. The miracle is still evident, even after it clearly demonstrated, after Pilate clearly demonstrated by his scourging that Jesus is not a threat to Rome. The miracle has not changed. The people still will believe. So the chief priests have to change their accusation, and the implication is that the popularity of Jesus, though clearly demonstrated not to be a threat to Rome, it's still a threat, but to the chief priests. So they still want him dead. As John is telling why the chief priest brought Jesus to Pilate, he is saying, oh, and by the way, they did this for themselves out of their own jealousy. These are jealous men. They're not noble. They're not patriots. Nor are they men of true religious zeal. They do not want Jesus dead because he had actually committed blasphemy. Rather, the problem is that Jesus had done something that was causing massive belief among the crowds. And the chief priests, rather than believe in him as well, only see that as a threat to their position. So they blind themselves to the truth of what's happened and its significance under the pretense of essentially patriotism for the purpose of preserving their own place in society. John exposes this when Jesus is acquitted of the charges that the chief priest brought to Pilate, and suddenly the chief priests have to change their charge of blasphemy. 
Keep in mind that although the other Gospels tell us that the religious leaders privately charged Jesus with blasphemy on account of his words before Caiaphas, in this Gospel, again, it's grounded not with his words before Caiaphas, which are not recorded here. Instead, the charge is tied with the resurrection of Lazarus. John wants to expose for his audience that that was the turning point for the chief priests in deciding to kill Jesus. That act, as with the rest of the miracles, is where Jesus demonstrates so clearly that He is the Son of God. And now people are believing. And the flow of John, verse 7, should cause you to pause. It should cause you to say, you know, wait a second, blasphemy? Blasphemy? Where is this coming from? They never said anything about blasphemy. What are, why are they saying this now? And as you read John, you see that John explained for you that it was never about blasphemy. It was always about Lazarus. The charge of blasphemy was not rooted in any truth. It was made up. It was, it was no, there was no sincere concern that Jesus had committed blasphemy. The very notion is preposterous that he would try to charge a man with blasphemy who had resurrected someone from the dead. If anything, that should prove that he's telling the truth. In fact, you could say that this charge of blasphemy, that it highlights the very degree to which they ignored the truth. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and they charge Jesus with blasphemy because he makes himself out to be the Son of God. How can that be? The, the answer that John gives is that they do this because these men are so blinded by jealousy over Jesus' popularity that they will charge Jesus with the very crime that the miracle which led to his popularity exonerated him of. Think about that. The miracle makes him popular precisely because it proves that he is the Son of God. If you're trying to get him killed because you're concerned he's endangering the nation with this truth, okay, you may be more than a little bit misguided, but okay, maybe you're accepting the truth, but you're afraid of what it means for the ones you love. Maybe you can even call that noble. But when the possibility is removed, and the only reason you can think to kill the man is blasphemy, when the very miracle that leads to his popularity actually proves he's not blaspheming, that he is a son of God, then it reveals the true motives all along. There was never a concern for the nation. There was never a concern for blasphemy. The problem was his popularity. He was gaining authority over the people. For the religious leaders, their place is so important. They will do this foolish, ridiculous thing, ignoring the overwhelming evidence that Jesus presented, just so that they won't lose their place before the people. Just so that they can be the ones in charge over Israel, rather than submitting to Christ. That's all they were interested in. Again, there is this question on the minds of John's readers. If Jesus did all these wonderful things, then why did people crucify him? And the point that he's demonstrating here is that it wasn't logical. It wasn't for lack of evidence that Jesus was crucified. And it wasn't because he was misunderstood. Rather, it was precisely because he was understood. And it was precisely because there was overwhelming evidence. And it was the implication of this evidence and the message it entailed that pushed the leaders over the edge. Their problem isn't that Jesus would cause cause Israel to lose its place in the world. It's that he would cause them to lose their place in the world. So this is the first example that John shows us. The chief priests demonstrate that unbelievers will harden their hearts because of pride. The second example is Pontius Pilate. He demonstrates that unbelievers will harden their hearts because of an overwhelming love for the world. An overwhelming love for the world. Pilate's Pilate's response is a little bit more straightforward in his presentation than the chief priests. It's easier to catch because the motives behind it aren't rooted in days and chapters earlier in John. His response and the motives behind that response are all captured right here in verses 8 to 16. John says, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Once the chief priests raise this charge of blasphemy, Pilate has a very interesting response. And it's fear. He's afraid. Pilate's own theological belief, which would have almost certainly been the traditional kind of Roman polytheistic tradition that in so many ways mirrored Greek theology, this belief would have left room for a belief that Jesus could be the son of a god. This was not uncommon for the mythology of the day. There are many stories you can read, even today, of gods coming down, having even physical relations with women and producing half-human, half-god children. These were men like, of course, Hercules or Achilles, both of whom were practically invincible. In fact, if you've ever read or heard of any of these ancient stories, you'd find that often in this mythology, the gods themselves would often even take human form and interact with men, and and often with pretty negative results. The gods of these mythologies were often very capricious. They were incredibly fickle, and as they interacted with men, they almost kind of toyed with them at times. So when the Jews make the charge that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, it's possible just from this statement that Pilate may have have become concerned that Jesus is one of these half-God men, or perhaps even a God himself. And if Jesus is, is either of these things... That in and of itself is a cause for fear. You don't want to try to crucify a Hercules or a Zeus. It's going to go poorly for you. However, interestingly enough, at this point in the trial, Pilate has a little bit more revelation than just the claims of the religious leaders about Jesus. In verse 13, we read of Pilate sitting on his judgment seat. Well, if you remember last week, we saw that in Matthew 27, 19, Matthew says that Pilate received... A, a, a message from his wife while sitting on this judgment seat earlier in the day as he was awaiting the crowd's decision on, on the criminal to release Jesus or Barabbas. And she said to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate probably has that in mind when he comes back and begins talking to Jesus afraid. Whether it's a genuine concern that Jesus is a God or even nothing more than superstition, Pilate is thinking something is different about Jesus. And so he asks, verse 9, Where are you from? Now Pilate wants answers. And he wants them with a greater degree of urgency than before. Now Pilate is beginning to realize that this is no run-of-the-mill criminal that he's dealing with. This is a holy man. You know, it's one thing to crucify your run-of-the-mill criminal. Even if you're wrong in the decision you made, there's no real consequences for a man as powerful as Pilate in the end. It's just the death of an insignificant man. Life's going to go on. But, but to crucify a god or the son of a god, that's an entirely different matter. This is not a man of insignificance. This is a man of ex- with extreme connections. And as a high-ranking Roman official, Pilate understands everything you need to know about the importance of connections. You make the wrong decision here, and while the man may be dead, the people he knows aren't, and they may make you pay for what you did wrong. Now Pilate is beginning to realize that he has something at stake in the decision. It can be easy to miss this, but up to this point, Pilate hasn't really been concerned with whether or not Jesus is innocent or whether he's guilty. He's rather indifferent. In fact, we don't have time to get into the details, but we know from history that that Pilate actually despised the Jews. If anything, he's been wanting to prove Jesus' innocence just to spite them. That's why he says in verse 6, Take him for yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. That's not a genuine offer. The Jews know they can't crucify Jesus, and so does Pilate. Pilate's really just making that statement in frustration to remind them who's really in charge and mock the fact that they don't have any authority. He's throwing it in their face that they have no power. It doesn't matter how much they beg him to do it, he's the one in charge and he's going to do what he wants to do. But the trial is beginning to matter now. Now Pilate is starting to get really interested. He has something at stake. Pilate has to know who he's dealing with or personally face the consequences of the wrong decision. Jesus, though, refuses to answer his question. Jesus makes it clear. Pilate needs to make this decision not because of who he may be connected to, not because of what Pilate may have to lose or gain as a result of the decision. Pilate needs to make the decision about whether or not Jesus is actually guilty. 
Jesus doesn't want there to be any confusion at this point. The issue at hand is not so much about who He is, but about what He's done. He has committed no sin. Zero. There is no crime. And Pilate knows it. And the fact that He's about to be crucified when He has committed no sin reveals the heart of everyone who's involved here. It shows the sinfulness of the religious leaders in delivering up for judgment, but it also shows the sinfulness of Pilate in condemning an innocent man. Jesus wants this point to be front and center for Pilate. The issue is not about his connections. It's about his guilt or his innocence. So Jesus puts the issue squarely before Pilate by refusing to answer his question about his true identity. Pilate, however, is not phased by any of this. He's not concerned with Jesus' guilt or his innocence. He's concerned with who he is and how the judgment he will render will affect himself. So frustrated, Pilate explodes. Verse 10, he says, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He retaliates against Jesus' silence by pointing out his own connections. He tries to force Jesus to answer him by pointing out the great authority that has been granted to him by Caesar. Pilate prizes the value of that connection and the authority it grants, and he tries to use that power to force Jesus to reveal his authority. And Jesus gives the response Pilate needs to hear. He says, verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. In this, Jesus answers the second question John's readers wanted to know. And again, that was, why didn't Jesus stop what was taking place? The answer is Jesus didn't stop these men because God the Father was an authority over Pilate and therein God the Father was an authority over whether or not Jesus was to die. You know what Jesus is reminding Pilate of right here? He's reminding Pilate that he's accountable to God for what he's about to do. No one else. Pilate needs to stop being concerned with who Jesus might know And he needs to start being concerned with how God is going to respond to the idea that Pilate is condemning an innocent man. God's uh, God's opinion is the only one that matters here. No one else's. Regardless of who Jesus knows or doesn't know, God sees what Pilate is doing. What kind of wrath will God execute for the condemnation of an innocent man, regardless of his connections? This is what Pilate needs to be concerned about. Now, incidentally, I'll just point this out. Incidentally, Jesus explains the difference between what Pilate is doing and what the religious leaders are doing. You see, though Pilate is culpable for sin here, his sin is not as great as that of the religious leaders. They are knowingly rejecting Christ in light of obvious evidence that he is the Messiah. Pilate is merely passing judgment over a seemingly innocent man with very little knowledge that he actually is the Son of God. There's a different knowledge level here. The religious leaders understand more clearly who Jesus is than Pilate. And there's also a different level of action taking place. The religious leaders have proactively sought to destroy Jesus. Pilate is simply passively passing judgment over him. So the religious leaders are guilty of a greater sin than what Pilate is here. But that being said, if Pilate condemns Jesus, he's still guilty. Now look at the first half of verse 12. John says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. So Pilate gets it. At least to some degree, he gets it. Pilate thinks that that somehow he has been placed in this position by at least a God of some sort, or even if he doesn't fully understand who that God is or what he's doing in the way that you or I might. And Jesus just told him that in doing what he's doing, he's going to be committing a sin. Combine this with the fact that three different times Pilate declared before the chief priest that he found no guilt in Jesus, and you have both spiritual and judicial truth about Jesus that Pilate believes enough that he's willing to challenge the desire of the crowds. So at this point, Pilate is listening to what Jesus is saying. He is accountable to God for what he's about to do. And so knowing that Jesus is innocent, he makes every legal effort he can to make sure that Jesus is released. Pilate believes that if he lets Jesus die, he's going to commit a sin against God. And he believes that enough that he takes even further measures to release Jesus at this point. So then, what would cause Pilate to ignore this truth and then put Jesus to death? Risk that kind of judgment that he's aware of here. What would cause him to do that? The answer is in the second half of verse 12. John says, 
But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The chief priests threatened to tell on Pilate. They threatened to go and tell Caesar that he let Jesus go. There is one thing, there is one thing that Pilate fears more than God at this point, and that's Caesar. The emperor at this time is a man by the name of Tiberius. And Tiberius was renowned as a particularly paranoid emperor, living in isolation, actually, out of fear for his life by this point in his reign. So even if Pilate was liked by Tiberius, it would be a dangerous thing to let someone go who was accused of being one of his enemies. But to make matters worse, history tells us that Pilate was unfortunate enough to make friends with a high-ranking official in the Roman government by the name of Sejanus. Sejanus had managed to gain so much authority in the Roman Empire that he began to be the real authority within Rome. In time, Sejanus became Rome's most feared citizen. If there was a problem, people began checking with Sejanus before checking with Tiberius. Eventually, Tiberius managed to discover that fact, and he executed Sejanus. And suddenly, everyone who had enjoyed the privilege of being friends with Sejanus during his life were now viewed with an eye of suspicion after his death. Well, Pilate was one of Sejanus' friends. So Pilate especially would not want word to get back to Tiberius that he let a pretender to any throne free since Tiberius would clearly see that as a challenge to his authority. It doesn't matter whether or not Pilate thinks Jesus is guilty of treason. If Tiberius hears that Pilate let an insurrectionist go, Tiberius will assume that he was an insurrectionist. He'll think this because of Pilate's association with Sejanus. Pilate knows that if he lets Jesus go here and Tiberius finds out, then even if he is not killed, he'll certainly lose his place as a ruler of the region and all the perks that come with it. Much like the chief priest, Pilate fears he'll lose something if Jesus lives. But it's not his glory, per se. It's everything else. Pilate knows that Caesar has the ability to take away every earthly thing that he has. He can take away his power over others. He can take away his wealth. He can take away even his life. And Pilate loves these things so much that he will blind himself to the truth. That Jesus is not only innocent, but perhaps even in some way supernatural. This is how he hardens his heart to Jesus. Look at verse 13. John says, So when Pilate heard these words, what words? Again, back in verse 12, Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Again, there's this question on the minds of John's readers. If Jesus did all these wonderful things, then why do people crucify him? And again, and again the point he's demonstrating is it wasn't logical. It wasn't for lack of evidence or for belief in the wrong evidence. Jesus wasn't crucified because Pilate really thought that he was guilty. No, Pilate knew that he was innocent. So why did he have Jesus killed? Well, he had him killed because of what he stood to lose if he didn't. He loved the world more than God. He thought the world had more to offer him than God. So when it came to a point that he had to make a choice, he chose the world. He chose the things he possessed, the things he had. As with the chief priest, Pilate's heart was the true issue, not his head. How does this information help us then reach our community? I want us to think about that for a second. If we can think about what we see with the chief priest and what we see with Pilate, how does it help us think about how we need to reach our community? Well, you're going to hate what I have to say here, but we're going to have to get back to the answer to that question next week. We'll come back and take a look at the answer to that question. The truth is that the implications contained in what we're seeing here are vast. In fact, they're they're, they're so vast um, that I don't think we have time to cover them and what we have remaining here this morning. And I want you to be able to grasp them. So so next week, we're going to spend a little time in review on this passage, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time unwrapping the implications of these lessons that we've learned here today, that what we learned from the example of the chief priests and Pilate. In the meantime, I want you to continue to ask yourself the same question that I challenged you with last week. Ask yourself, where do I deny God? Where do I reject the truth in the face of overwhelming evidence? Where do I harden my heart? Examine where you may be committing one of these two errors. Are are you refusing to respond to the truth either due to pride 
or perhaps due to a love for this world. If you're a believer, you you likely still do this at least on some level. For example, uh, do you ever see yourself refusing to testify about Christ because of a love for the world? Do you refuse to to testify about Him because of the comfort you'll lose if you do? In that moment, there's really very little difference between you and Pilate. Right? You know the truth, but out of a love for the world, you cover it up. That's sin. Or do you shrink back because you're afraid of looking foolish in front of people who mock the gospel? In that moment, there's very little difference between you and the chief priests. You love your place with your peers, so you cover up the truth. That's sin. But there are a number of other ways we do this outside of pure gospel proclamation. Really, every time we choose to sin, we are like these men because we know the truth and we refuse to acknowledge it. Our refusal to obey isn't logical then, right? It's a heart issue. Find those areas of your life where you ignore the truth. Own it. Confess it to God. And then ask for His grace to turn away from that foolishness. And if you don't believe, and I, and I can't assume that everyone here does believe, so if you don't believe in Christ, if you haven't repented in faith, would you examine why you continue to reject the truth? You may have a number of reasons for claiming that your mind just won't let you believe. Can I just ask you this question honestly? Can you ask yourself this question honestly, actually? Do I want to believe the gospel? If you could absolutely confirm the truth of this message with 100% clarity, and if you were to know without a shadow of doubt all that these things are true, how would you feel about that? Would you be excited to know that you can have a relationship with God, or would you be afraid that you'd have to forsake your sin or accept something that your friends might consider foolish? Is the truth of the matter not that you can't believe, but that you don't want to believe? Because if so, understand that if you don't want to believe, then just like with the chief priest, just like Pilate, your, your heart is bound to cloud your mind and distort the truth. All the arguments against Jesus that you're wrestling with are really just excuses your heart is throwing up to justify your unbelief. The reason you're having trouble with your head is, is not because the gospel is really unconvincing. It's because there's something in your life that you don't want to forsake. If this is you, then I pray that this message would open your eyes to the deception that you might see the truth of the gospel and be saved.